A garrison is a safe place where an army gathers. In the same way, the Disability Garrison podcast is a place for the army of disability rights advocates to gather and discuss complex issues. We are unafraid to identify problems in our world and have difficult conversations about them. But we are not just here to complain. We spend our time brainstorming solutions with generals in the disability rights movement. Together, we take action to make positive change and lead the fight for justice and equality. My name is Hallie Carmichael. My name is Michael Murray. This is the Disability Garrison. Hello, Disability Garrison podcast listeners. We are so excited for today's episode on disability identity and how society frames those of us with disabilities in in terms of how we're seen, what we have access to, how we're treated. And our guest today is a return podcast guest, Andy Imperato, the executive director at Disability Rights California, one of the largest protection advocacy groups. And Andy will share with us about his own disability identity journey. Excited to listen in. Well, welcome, Andy. Andy Imperato, the director of Disability Rights California, is with us today on the Disability Garrison podcast. We are thrilled to have you and and chat with you about uh, disability identity and kind of dig into what that means, why it's important, and and what, what barriers might exist to it. Absolutely. Before we jump in, Andy, you have an incredible background. The influence that you've had on disability policy in America is huge. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about uh, your background and where you came from. Sure. So it's great to be here with you, Michael and Holly. Thank you for inviting me. And I love talking about disability identity. So thanks for picking this topic. I um, grew up in Southern California and went to law school in Northern California and developed, began to develop my disability identity in law school. I have bipolar disorder. During my last semester of law school, I had my first serious episode of depression. It ended up kind of settling into a pattern where I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder that happens seasonally six months out of the year. I have a lot of energy, a lot of self-confidence. Six months, my energy goes down, my self-confidence goes down, and it's pretty predictable for me. So, you know, I was really lucky, you know, when I was dealing with this new diagnosis as a baby lawyer, as we we (laughs) call the young young folks, I was around other lawyers that had visible and non-visible disabilities. And they encouraged me to be out and open with my diagnosis and my lived experience and to see it as a source of strength and identity and uh, authenticity for the work that I was doing. And I found at that point, most of my life, I've done either management or policy work. But at that point, I was representing clients. And I was out and open with my clients, too. And I found they really liked it that their lawyer had bipolar disorder and was open about it. And I, I found that it was a positive. I, I've certainly experienced discrimination at different points in my career. And it's not like I find it's kind of unpredictable how people are going to react, but I've had way more positive experiences from being out with my disability than I have had negative experiences. Well, and I think for those of us uh, with disabilities, growing up with a disability and having an IEP through school, especially, there is a projection on you and even your disability is defined by how 
you can't do stuff. And so I think for many of us, and really until I met you, Andy, my perception of my disability was that it was something to overcome. And so I wonder if for our our listeners, you could just talk a little bit about when we say disability identity, what do we mean? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's a broad category. When I was at the American Association of People with Disabilities, when I interviewed for the job, you know, as somebody with a non-visible disability, they asked me, you know, what what is your top priority if you're if you're hired as the president and CEO? And I said, my top priority is to make disability sexy. <laughs> I love it. And they were like, what do you, what do you mean? And I said, I want everybody who has a connection and who's protected by laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act to want to connect around that identity because it's cool. Yeah. And if we can establish that kind of a cultural identity where it's not medical, it's not up to a doctor, and in many ways, it's political. We're making a political decision to connect around this identity. Then that will help our organization. We were created to bring together all the different segments of the yes. disability community. Part of our job is to brand disability as a good thing, as a yes. cool thing, not as a negative. So I felt like for APD, making disability sexy was completely connected to their mission. You know, I wonder if it would be helpful for our listeners as you're grappling with this concept of disability identity, because we want to outline for you, what is disability identity? And then we want to talk about why we believe that having disability identity can be positive. But I want to focus in a little bit about identity before we get to that piece. One of the ways that I think is helpful is to differentiate between kind of a medical model of uh, of how to view disability and uh, a cultural or social model of disability. There's a lot of different ways that you can view this. And for our audience who is who's maybe more focused on this, some of you guys are going to want to parse it out even more. But I think for our listeners who are maybe new to this, just having a basic understanding of the difference between medical model versus a social political model, how sure. would you define those? Well, I think it's easy to see it in the context of the deaf community. So, you know, if, you, if you're if you a physician who specializes in people who have hearing loss or who are deaf, you're going to figure out what's wrong with the person's hearing and you're going to give them a label based on what your instruments are able to measure. And it's part of your training to do that. And the idea is figure out the medical issues for this person and then help them navigate those medical issues as best they can. Another way to think about the deaf identity is, are you culturally deaf? Did you grow up around deaf people? Did you, you know, is sign language your natural language? And are you comfortable in that culture? And it's really, none of that is medical. It's really a cultural identity. And I think the deaf community, more than any part of the disability community, has defined for themselves their culture. They have a visual language that they love. And they, you know, have been able to create a really strong cultural identity. Not everybody who de- who's deaf gets exposed to that, which right. is sad. I, I have an employee who, who is deaf and does outreach for us. She grew up in Indianapolis she went to a school in Indianapolis, pretty much for all, for all of her K through 12 education, where she was around other deaf students. Her parents were deaf. She went to Gallaudet. And Gallaudet she, is a university just for deaf folks. 
Yeah, and so she's an African American woman from Indianapolis, and she said most of the other African American students at Gallaudet didn't get that cultural exposure that she did. Wow. So they were like trying to read people's lips, and they were trying to learn sign language, and so she was just way ahead. And she feels like for white middle class deaf folks who have deaf parents, they get all of this, and it's part of their upbringing. But a lot of kids that have other barriers don't get it. So. Yeah. I, I feel like the, the medical model is fine for what it is. And some disabilities are inherently medical. You know, Holly, your daughter has a lot of okay. complicated medical things going on that you're trying to figure out. And if you do figure them out, her quality of life is going to improve dramatically. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Yeah. But, if, right. but if all we think about when we see a human being is what's wrong with them yes. and how to kind of fix the things that are wrong with them, yeah. human beings are inherently l- limited. Uh, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King said, "Only God is able." Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. so I I do think it's important, and I think the Native American community does this better uh, to recognize that we're all created by God, and that part of our job as human beings is to see the inherent value in every person. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's so valuable. Going back to the deaf community, one of the things that uh, a friend of mine who's deaf uh, said that I thought was really powerful was, Michael, even if I have hearing aids or a cochlear implant and I can hear perfectly what you're saying, I am still deaf. Because for him, it was a cultural thing. It was an identity that he saw himself as uh, as embodying, um, and I think for for many of us um, with uh, a disability identity, when I look at it, it's not that I personally need to change me in order to look more like a larger society segment of society, which you know uh, could be labeled normal. But it's actually that there are environmental things that if you change those. I can exist uh, and add value to my community. So the issue is not that I need to be able to walk. Uh, The issue is that uh, there are curb cuts so that my wheelchair can get around. And so it's a different mindset of how we view disability. Well, I would also say that if we really lean into a disability culture, we may stop asking the question, how do you add value? (laughs) The Ah. The concept of adding value as our role as humans yeah. It's kind of an ableist concept. We're not here to add value. Yeah. We're here yeah. to be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a better way to say it. That's a much better way to say mm-hmm. it. So yeah. I think that gives us a little bit of an outline of, of disability identity. I think before we go on to the value of having a disability identity, Holly, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about our hidden dis- or uh, non-apparent disabilities and, and apparent disabilities and the difference in identity for some of that. Yeah, I was really excited to have this conversation with you because you're a very successful man with a non-apparent disability, but who's very open and transparent, like you shared. And I'm, I guess, ashamedly not. I I don't, and I I don't, it's not about shame or, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't quite put my finger on what it is. I almost feel unworthy. I certainly have diagnoses and struggles. I struggled a lot with depression as a child, multiple suicide attempts even, and ended up losing our first daughter and having post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety. And then um, I kept getting sick with, with strep throat, which 
turns out ended up leading into um, chronic fatigue and deep infiltrating endometriosis that I have causing this chronic pain. And so I have these things that I struggle with, but I don't, I think the hard part for me is in my mind, I'm always like, well, somebody has it worse. You're not, you know, and, and you often, I think disabilities are often seen as the physical disabilities or the things that are very apparent or visible is, is what's seen. And I, I think about the struggles that even my daughter Maggie goes through. And I think, you know, anytime I, I am complaining about going upstairs or something, I think Maggie would kill to do this. So I can't, so it's, it's hard for me to, I don't want to feel like an imposter or like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and and I think that does, that's probably not a good thing in the, in the mind to disability, but I'm just curious. But I guess I would say, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that. I know that's all very personal and I appreciate (laughs) your willingness to be open about it with me and with your listeners. Um, But I think we all get messages about what is and is not a legitimate disability. Yeah. We, you know, we had this problem in the Supreme court when they were interpreting the definition of disability in the Americas with Disabilities Act. They didn't want to have a broad definition that would include people who wore eyeglasses So they came up with a way to exclude people who wore eyeglasses that also excluded pretty much anybody who was able to manage their symptoms. Mm -hmm. So if you you could manage your symptoms with a prosthetic or manage your symptoms with medication, Mm -hmm. whatever you did to improve your functioning, if you got your functioning up to a certain level, the Supreme Court said, well, you're not impaired enough to have civil rights protections. And that was completely counter to what Congress said when they passed the idea, the Supreme Court was very comfortable. It was a seven to two decision. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the wrong <laughs> side. Very comfortable wow. saying, we're not going to have this law protect people who are high functioning, who are doing well as human beings, whatever their mitigating strategy is. Yeah. We're going to look at that when we see how disabled they are. The Supreme yeah. Court completely bought into this idea that if you don't have a serious problem, then you're not disabled. Yeah. And and it creates a catch-22 for a lot of people because it's like, if you're doing well, then don't use that label. Yeah. And if you do use that label, then you must be doing really poorly, so I'm not going to hire you. Yeah. And this idea that yeah. you can't be legitimately disabled and better, in yeah. part because of your experience yes. with your disability, the yeah. Supreme Court could never wrap their head around that. Yeah. But that, to me, is what our movement is about. Our yeah. movement is about embracing the full diversity of you know people that have any kind of an impairment or history of an impairment and saying you should not experience discrimination based on your impairment and you should find a way over time to learn from your lived experience with your impairment and apply it in a way that can help you do better. And I think for those of us with non-apparent disabilities, it is an interesting dynamic because for a long time, the disability rights movement would see folks like the three of us and say, I don't see your disability and are you a part of us? Uh, and uh, and I think that was that I, I experienced some of that. I think, Andy, you experienced even more of that at, at earlier on in our movement. I think we're starting to move past that. But Holly, I also think you brought up a really good point that in general society, 
being the CEO of a $340 million company or the largest disability rights nonprofit in the United States uh, and being out and open about your disability, there's some risk. And I think recognizing that is important. Yeah, no, and I don't mean to make light of it. And I you have, don't. I have, no. I have yeah. experienced discrimination, but I don't, again, like to me, putting your disability out there as a CEO mm-hmm. is a form of leadership. Yeah. And what you are doing as a CEO is you, you are saying, this is my authentic self. This is what I bring to this role. Your organization has a disability-centric mission. Yeah. So you're bringing lived experience both as a parent and as a spouse yeah. and as a woman with a disability. And it may be that the parent role is really comfortable or the <laughs> spouse role is really comfortable and this third role is less comfortable. I promise you, it will get more comfortable over time. You know, Laura Hershey, who is a really important disability leader in Colorado, wrote about disability pride, a poem about how you develop disability pride. And she said, you get proud by practicing. And wow. it's really true. You, you have yeah. to kind of co- talk about it and keep talking about it and keep telling your story until it feels natural and comfortable. And you can tell it to strangers on an airplane, which is what yeah. I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And then you play them Justin Timberlake's great sexy back. Yeah. <laughs> and get them dancing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I want our listeners just to pause on that for a moment. There are going to be some of you who are going to be listening to this and you're going to listen to Holly, who for the first time is talking about her disability identity and think, I'm not sure I could do that. That's that's scary. But I think Andy's message to you and our message to you from the disability garrison is uh, say, say that again around pride. I think that that's a really important point to hit. You got Proud by practicing. Proud by practicing. And you can start with people who are safe, you know? Yeah. Start Mm -hmm. with your best friend. Start with your spouse. Start with your sibling. But also, as a a person with a non-apparent disability, surround yourself with people who see your disability as an important part of your identity and as a positive differentiator, because there will always be people in your life who don't see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to make sure you find the people who do see it that way. That, be, that yeah. becomes kind of the people in your corner. But I think if you take your lived experience that you just described, which I'm sure it's not all of it. <laughs> but it's a great the, recap. the experience that you described, you know, think about the mothers and fathers out there who have a daughter that is suicidal or, wow. or the other, you know, people who yeah. lost a child. Like when you put your story out there and you're running you know, this multi-million dollar corporation, you're giving all of them hope of what's possible. Like, you know, being that depressed is not kind of, it doesn't circumscribe what you can accomplish as a human being. Losing a child doesn't circumscribe what you can accomplish as a human being. You've been able to accomplish all of these things. I would argue in part because of the insight that came from your lived experience. You, you, You had resilience and you had maturity as a young adult that a lot of people don't have. Yeah, so good, so good. Well, you know, I'm happy to share Disability Rights California is, you know, a free legal services organization, $41 million budget, 320 or so staff. And 
I have been very open with the staff from day one about my bipolar disorder. And what I've seen over time is some of my most accomplished attorneys are now talking about their lived experience with their mental illness, could be depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it in part because somebody has modeled for them how to do that. They see how people react to me being out and they realize that it can be safe to be out as a professional with this chronic health condition that's connected to the mission of the organization. So I really do think there's an aspect of it that's contagious. (laughs) If you and Michael and others in your company are out and open and it's part of your identity, you're creating a safe space for other people to be out and open. And you'll be surprised how many people fall into that category. So in the corporate world, companies are trying to get their employees to self-identify because for as a federal contractor, you're supposed to have a certain percentage of your workforce. And it's 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 the not it's the people with non-apparent disabilities in leadership roles who really create a wide space for other people to step up. So and, true. and it's it's sad to me how many people in leadership roles, even when they've attained that level of success in their career, still don't feel safe being out with their disability. Even yeah. if the fact that they had that lived experience is part of why they've been successful, they still don't feel comfortable yeah. making it part of their story. Yeah. And the, mm-hmm. the issue of shame or imposter yeah. around, should I own this identity? Is this, mm-hmm. Am I somehow cheapening the concept of disability? I think we get that message from the medical model that we talked about earlier. We get that message from people who try to police the boundaries of what is a legitimate disability. And I would argue everything we've done as a culture throughout history to police those boundaries was bad for disabled people. When we police the boundaries, disabled people don't do well. They're basically trying to find the truly disabled, which is a code word for people that can't help themselves and everybody else is not disabled. And that's just not, the disability movement is the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. It recognizes that we all can have self-determination. We all can be the captain of our own ships. And it doesn't matter how impaired we are, we all have that capacity. So don't buy into anybody's effort to say, you're not disabled enough to be a proud disabled woman. That's Mm -hmm. up to you. Well, and you know, when we think about civil rights and the disability rights movement in all movements benefit when we can come together more. And I, I don't think that's really happened a lot with, with not, there, there's a lot of segregation, even in, for example, my daughter's rare disease, we have, you know, rare disease is for her. There's only a thousand people in the world with it. But when you look at the number of people combined with rare diseases and, and really efforts, like if we could all come together and push for, for civil rights or different pieces, I mean, that, that yeah. would be really powerful. Wow. And you just hit the nail on the head. I think that there, uh, as a movement, um, so you want to talk about one of the values of disability identity. If we can create a disability identity as a movement and as a culture that says there is no us versus them, there is no you're disabled, not, there is us, and that we as a movement have each other's backs and that we're going to support each other, the value of that and what we could accomplish on a political uh, spectrum uh, for those of us in the disability community would be 
uh, it would be massive. We would be a political force that nobody could reckon with. Well, and I just kind of take what you just said and apply it to this moment that we're living through. We have all these folks who have long COVID that yeah. have civil rights protections under the Americas with Disabilities Act. We have an opportunity as a movement to welcome them into the movement. Yes. You know, Holly, you talked yeah. about chronic fatigue. A yeah. lot of the long COVID stuff is very similar to yeah. chronic fatigue. Walking them into the movement, helping them understand accommodations, helping them understand assistive technology, helping them understand disability culture and disability identity. That's all stuff that we can do as practitioners and people who are part of this movement. It's not stuff that their physicians are going to be particularly good <laughs> at. They're yeah. so bad. It's at not it. stuff yeah. that their spouses or their parents mm -hmm. or yeah. their children necessarily are going to help them do. We're the ones that can help them do that. Yeah. We're the ones that can say to them, don't let the long COVID keep you from doing whatever it is that you want to do in your life. And don't let other people's ableism kind of lower your hopes of what's possible for you to do in your life. Yeah. 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 Yep. Well, that learning from one another, true. So we can build allies. I yes. mean, that was a big thing with with getting the playground, an accessible playground built in our community. Is a lot of people are saying, "Well, it's one kid." It's not one kid. You know, learning how how it benefits all of us. Some of these basic civil rights, like you said, the ADA was in place and is now protecting those who have long COVID who have probably never even thought of the ADA or don't even maybe even know what the acronym stands for yet. Right. They have this protection and, and understanding how this civil rights movement is bigger than, than one disability type or, or just physical disability. Yeah. And on the, I mean, the playground example is important for lots of reasons. If you have a universally designed or fully accessible playground, yeah. It sends a message to anybody who visits that playground that you're thinking about that form of diversity. Any kid or parent can move in and out of disability. So good. The playground's ready for them. Right. Yeah. And to the extent that, again, going back to making disability sexy, to the extent that the accessibility features are cool yeah. right, and they, they yes. become ex expected, that's where we want to get. Yeah. So you don't have to wield your disability to get what you need because everybody yeah. wants what you need. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I think you did that. Uh, hashtag fair play for all. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, go back and check yeah. out some of our work on that. But I think that's what you did when you fought for an accessible playground uh, in Sturges was made it so that it was sexy. And some of the stuff that they play on. I mean, every kid really wants to play cool. on that. Yeah. It's really cool stuff. That universal design concept of figuring out there are ways that you can smartly design playgrounds or places or, or that is helpful for everyone. That's helpful for the grandparent who's using a walker yeah. to take their child to the playground. Well, and and you can think about it in the context of work too. Mm -hmm. If we create workplaces where everybody can get the accommodations they need to be as productive and happy as possible, mm -hmm. and they don't have to wear their disability identity to get those accommodations, the workplace is going to work better for everyone. Yeah. yeah. I want to dive in for just a moment and look at some of the potential negative impacts of not having disability identity. There's some really interesting research uh, around what's called covering. So the covering is the concept that I have to hide a piece of myself or uh, change part of who I am in order to fit into a dominant culture. Um, and so, you know, we see this for uh, uh, for women, for example, 
who feel like in order to survive uh, inside of the workplace, they have to act more like a man. And there's some really interesting research around this, but there's also been some really interesting research about what happens to those of us with disabilities and the amount of energy that we have to spend to hide our disabilities and to hide that part of our identities and all of that energy that's being spent to, to cover those things up uh, is energy that ultimately isn't being put forward inside of the workplace. And ultimately, it's just really tiring. I think in some ways, it's it's deeper than that. It's almost like kind of going to your core as a person. A lot of us develop our disabilities during childhood. Some of us develop our disabilities during adulthood. But for those of us that develop them during childhood, Many of us get a message from our parents yeah. that nobody should know about our disability. Totally. Mm-hmm. And totally. that it's a deep, dark secret. Yeah. And that we have to basically suck it up right. and be superhuman. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And part of the message that we get from our parents, I think it's unintentional, is that we are not going to be loved right. if we are not superhuman. So good. Like this, this, right. this kind of impairment part of us, which again I think was is there because God put it there. Yeah, uh, my, our, my parents are telling <laughs> us, "Don't tell anybody about that thing." Yeah, because it can only be a bad thing, and it yeah. can only lead to bad outcomes. But one of those bad outcomes is less love from your parent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So getting parents to love their disabled children and love the disability part of their disabled children is really important. And if the parents who are able to do that, I think it helps that child grow into adulthood where they're not worried about their disability because it does, it's not a barrier for them with their parents. Yeah, And yeah. I, I think it's really sad that a lot of parents with really good intentions tell people, don't tell anybody about your disability. Right. It's if, only, if you have a choice. I mean, yeah. some people don't have a choice. Well, or, or if you do have to talk about it, talk about it in the context of overcoming it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you brought up a good point, too, of one of those parental fears or maybe about overcoming or hiding it is because if the world can't, if there isn't a world that's accepting or supportive or accessible. And, and I mean, there's some there's some moms in the um, rare disease CDG group that talk about grieving, having a, you know, not having a normal child, which I can certainly relate to you. You know, you have this little girl and you think, Oh, you know, she's going to play ball. We're going to play volleyball together. Like, cause that's what I did in high school. And we're going to do all the, you know, you, you have this dream or life that you envision for your child. And certainly having a disability can hinder that thought. It changes it. But I think the concept that any child is normal or yeah. any child yeah. is average or any child is typically developing. There's all these yes. euphemisms oh, that yes. people use. Yeah. None of it really holds water. Yeah. There, there is no normal. Well, yeah. And I think you were about to finish yeah. that sentence because Holly, I know yeah. you and I know that your perception of how valuable you find both of your children with disabilities yes. and how you wouldn't change them is something that you fought for. So yes. I just want to make sure that you get a chance to kind of. Oh, no. Thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. But I mean, I think that there's um, I think that one of those pieces that can help some of those families is like the we need to build a better world. I I, I sure. told our our employees last year um, that I wouldn't change Maggie for anything, but I would change the world for her. And there is so much. Yeah, and I mean, you talked about some of the, you know, of course, medical interventions to give her a better quality of life. But 
certainly wouldn't wouldn't change her. She brings a ton of joy and value to the world. And, and to bring it back to the disability identity concept, I recognize that not everybody is going to be able to read literature to develop their identity. People develop mm-hmm. their identity in a lot of different ways. But if you think about the, the impact that Maggie can have when she rolls into a room or calls mm-hmm. into a room, however she moves around. <laughs> yes, yes, um, both. <laughs> she's going to be noticed in most rooms. Yeah. And the energy in the room is going to change. Yeah, and it does. That, that's going to happen no matter whether she has a strong disability identity yeah. or not. Yes. But if yeah. she rolls in that room ready for that change, expecting that change, and then ready to leverage the change yeah. to get whatever she wants out of that room, <laughs> that's a skill where she's the one who's changing the world. I feel, like, I feel, like, you, I feel like you've met yeah. Maggie because that is who you raised her to be. And I, no, and but I think it's, that's it is a superpower, but it's, I think it's interesting to think about it as that's something that she's doing. You as a yeah. parent can just stay out of the way and yeah. let it happen. Yeah. yeah, help her develop her own. I mean, that 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 is the job of a parent, helping your children with disabilities develop self-advocacy because they will need it. I, and it's it's really critical to yeah. our piece on self-determination is, you know, a huge thing for people of any disability to live. You're going to hopefully live beyond your parents, I, I yeah. hope. And so. Well, and, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I said that Andy was a huge part of helping me understand my disability identity. But I, I think I have to go back so far as to see, as to talk about my dad and a realization that as a person with a disability, he gave me some example by which to see my own disability. It wasn't perfect um, as far as identity was concerned, but it definitely helped me see myself as and the things that I would bring uh, that my disability was not uh, a negative but a positive and that I could bring all that I had and that there was no shame that was brought into there. And, and so, uh, so I think stepping into that disability identity and saying, yeah, I, uh, I have something that I am excited to add, not in spite of my disability, but in part because of that, that, and because of who I am and because of all that that's made me to be in it, there are lots of things that have created who I am. Uh, but ultimately I end up seeing my disability as a superpower. It's, uh, it's a, it's a superpower that adds empathy, excitement, joy, suffering. Uh, I mean, you know, all of the things inside of there that make life rich but I, and beautiful. I, I feel like the biggest thing that I get from my disability identity and being out with it is connection. Yeah. Connection so to other human beings. And again, you know, this is my third CEO job. I've now spent most of my professional life as a CEO connecting to your employees, especially in a pandemic, especially during all the yeah. upheaval that we've been through as a society, could never be more important. Yeah. And the, the leaders who connect in the deepest way are people who put their own stuff out there they make themselves vulnerable they're authentic and they're real so living into your disability identity can be an incredible tool as a leader yeah and i just feel like not enough leaders are taught that if you go to business school and you read all the management books there's not a lot of talking about what disabled leaders can accomplish yeah that non-disabled leaders could not accomplish. Have you read that management book? I have not seen that management book. <laughs> I have not. Let me put that on John's reading list. Though. He's like, I mean, Satya Nadella from Microsoft wrote a book about 
how he was successful at Microsoft. He called it, he hit refresh. Yeah. But the core message of his book was his experience as a parent of two disabled children had helped him develop empathy, right. which helped Microsoft rediscover its soul. Wow. Um, yeah. That's why well, they've done some work around, um, you know, video game controllers that are adaptable and lots of really cool projects. Yeah, but again, this is what I love about that book. It wasn't a commercial for Microsoft. It was about his personal journey as a parent. He basically was saying, my children made me a better leader. Yeah. Yeah. And I took that and helped Microsoft rediscover its soul. So I feel like there's a book for you to write, which is how my disability has led me to spend most of my life as a CEO and what that's done. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of... (laughs) I'm excited to read that book. There's a lot of CEOs with bipolar disorder and depression and ADHD. I mean, these are all high incidence conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And the high part of bipolar disorder can make you accomplish things and have ambition and, you know, capacity that can be really helpful. And the low part can help you connect with people that otherwise might be hard to connect to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talked about too, that sense of connection and community as being part of disability identity. And I know uh, for my son, Dexter, who's autistic, we've, he's done a lot of recently research on autism because he's been struggling with school and learning about, how his brain works with autism and how he interprets this authority figure of a teacher and how he approaches <laughs> it. It has been, it's really been helpful to see more confidence and understanding of his own self and, and yeah. be able to approach and problem solve. Now, do we still have trouble with school? Yes, but yeah. um, it's, he's, it's, it's really interesting to get his thought and perspective of researching and learning yeah. more about that. And I think for our listeners, hopefully you're walking away from this seeing three very different disability identities uh, in different stages and different ways of viewing it. And our goal today is for all of you guys to be able to do the same, to reflect on what is that disability identity? What does that look like for you? How can you impact and change the world and what part of yourself do you want to become comfortable with? And both in sharing, but also in just uh, when you look in the mirror. And so I think today we're going to end out this uh, with, a, with a simple message. My name is Michael Murray, uh, and I have a disability, and I am proud of that disability. My name's Andy Imperato, and I probably have many disabilities, and I'm proud of all of them. <laughs> And my name is Holly Carmichael, and I am a proud disabled woman who's also a CEO. Thank you guys for listening. Wow. That may have been one of my favorite episodes. I know I say that every time, but that was such a powerful episode. Holly, I think for you, this is one of the first times that you've really, like in a super public setting, talked about your disability identity. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably the first time I've really explored it myself. I don't think I probably viewed or saw myself as disabled, I certainly didn't want to take away from somebody, you know, when I when I look at Maggie, who has such significant physical needs and has a developmental disability, obviously, my disability impacts me much differently. But, you know, when I think about and reflect on, you know, people with disabilities, and, and those of us that have disabilities, do we 
benefit from shrinking and narrowing our tent and drawing boxes and saying, no, you can only, no. you can only be in this tent if you meet X, Y, Z or have, have these 10 diagnoses. I think that's really silly. And when we think yeah. about even mental health and, you know, part of my disability is around my mental health. You know, I have, I have physical health diagnoses in terms of chronic fatigue and, deep infiltrating endometriosis, but mental health as well in terms of anxiety and, and PTSD and depression. And even so much so that that at the point where I've had, you know, suicidal thoughts and attempts. And I think I think one of the things that really maybe helped me come to terms with disability was just conversing with Andy. Re- really, I mean, yeah. he 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 made it he made a comment to me that said that, you know, Holly your, your disability could have killed you, but you don't see it as, as something significant. So I think, you know, when we talk about disability identity in terms of this larger tent and, and disability rights really being human rights and that we all just want to, to have the same access and control, we could all join the disability community at any moment and right. just really embracing the identity. Like it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. It's okay to have a disability. It's yeah. not this derogatory term that is only for the people yeah. with significant impairments of, you know, right. mobility. Yeah. Well, so. and I think especially for those of us with non-apparent disabilities like myself and you and Andy, we've been taught by society, unless you can see it, it's not really there. But a realization that my my disability has had a profound impact on my day, but also has had a profound positive impact on who I am as a person um, and the way that I view myself and the way that I view others. And I really value that and I wouldn't change it. And, you know, and I, I got to tell you, Holly, I, I also had my eyes open during this conversation because <laughs> for years I've been framing disability in the context of we make valuable contributions to society. And we do as people with disabilities, we definitely do. But I think that Andy also really challenged me on that framing to say, we as people with disabilities have value because inherently life has value and we have value. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and that, was, that was also a challenge for me. So I, I think that our first, you know, we always like to give all of our listeners three things that they can do to make a difference or an impact on this issue. So the first thing is do what Holly and I just did. Listen to this podcast and you're going to be challenged and sit down and have a conversation with someone that you trust and someone that you love and just say, Hey, how did this impact you? What did you learn? What was, uh, what did you walk away with? And so that's the first thing we'd encourage everybody to do. The second thing, we always like to uh, tell you about some legislation and some things that you can do that could have a broader systematic impact. But one of the things that we know as uh, those of us, especially who grew up with a disability, is that we don't see a lot of positive role models in school. And being able to see those of us with disabilities who throughout history have had an incredible impact would make such a huge positive change in our disability identity and how we're able to view ourselves. And so we really want to encourage, uh, there are states that have outlined disability history curricula for high school, middle school, elementary schools, so that those of us with disabilities and the contributions that we've made as people with disabilities are uh, seen and heard of in schools. And this can have such a positive impact on our experience and how we view our identity as people with disabilities. 
Yeah, it's it's part of our history. And it's so, you know, my son Dexter's in fourth grade, and they did a fourth grade history, uh, you know, historical figure project. And there are all these civil rights leaders and, and all of these past presidents. And, and um, you know, we had to get special permission to do Judy Human, the mother of the disability rights movement, who definitely should be on that list. But we yeah. just, you know, we, we special need to permission. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We need yeah. to teach disability rights in, in, in school, and, and it's important for everybody to learn about it. Disability rights are human rights, and, and this, this should be part of our, our standard education. Absolutely. And then last but not least, we always want to give you an organization that we're going to donate to and that we would encourage all of you to donate to. Uh, you want to tell us about uh, our organization today? Yes, Youth Organizing, also known as YO, uh, they are disabled and proud. They're a program for disabled youth that are 16 to 28. This is a California-based program, um, and it gives youth with disabilities some opportunities and leadership to social network and, and some resources to help them in their disability identity. They work on different advocacy campaigns and provide disability-focused mentoring, and they connect youth to volunteer opportunities in their own communities. Um, so you can check out their website, Disability Youth Organizing Disabled and Proud, and uh, our website will have a link to theirs, and you can make a donation to this uh, wonderful organization that we've selected today. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, and we've got a big announcement to make. Uh, this is coming out on July 26, which is the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. We have spent the whole month celebrating inclusive play and celebrating the opportunity to build inclusive playgrounds where everyone can be a part. This is a passion of ours here at GT Independence. It was uh, started uh, by Holly. And we uh, are, do you want to tell them what our giveaway for this time was? Yeah, our giveaway this year is we are going uh, giving away a trip to Morgan's Wonderland, this all-inclusive theme park in Texas, um, right along with me and my family to celebrate Maggie's ninth birthday. So she is super excited. She asks me every day, how many days till her birthday? Um, <laughs> and, and so we are really, really uh, excited to announce our winner, the Shore family, Adam, Blake, and Amber uh, Shore. We are so excited to have have you, you join us. Thank you for your engagement with uh, Inclusive Playgrounds, for your highlighting of it, for selecting your favorite feature. Thank you to all our contestants who engaged, because yeah. honestly, that is a huge part of advocacy is just knowing and talking about um, issues and making people aware and speaking up at your own community meetings about how important inclusion is and how important it is for everyone to be able to have access to play. I couldn't say it better than Disability Garrison, thank you for all that you do. Holly, it's a pleasure.